So here's a question for you this morning. What kind of sin would you consider to be a big sin? What kind of sin would you consider to be a big sin? If I were to guess, some of you might immediately think of adultery. Of course, you'd be right. Adultery is a sin that gets right at the heart of the gospel because marriage was always meant to be a beautiful picture of Christ's sacrificial commitment to his bride, the church, and the church's response of love and faithfulness to her husband, the Lord Jesus. So yes, for either partner, the husband, or the wife to commit adultery mars the picture marriage was always meant to represent the good news of the gospel. So certainly, adultery is a big sin. Others of you might think of murder. Of course, you'd be right as well. All mankind is created in God's image, deserves to be treated with dignity and respect, and certainly none of us has the right to take a person's life. That's God's prerogative alone. So yes, murder definitely is a big sin. Others might think of idolatry. An idol is anything you'd sin in order to get, meaning you'd beg, borrow, steal, or lie to get it, or you sin if you don't get it, whining and complaining. So yes, idolatry is a big sin because you're worshiping something other than God. Now you might be wondering, is Pastor Steve actually going to argue that there are some sins that he'd consider little sins rather than big sins? Actually, I'm arguing that every single one of us has a list of sins in our minds. So we categorize sins and we rank them and we list them in our minds as either big sins or little sins. So if you can just get that list in your mind, I want to ask you a very simple question. Where would you put the sin of grumbling? Would it be in the top 10, meaning the top 10 list of big sins? Or would it be way down at the bottom? Here's one way I've thought about getting after this idea. How would you feel if you actually committed a murder? How would you feel? Wouldn't you feel horrific? Horrible? Wouldn't you immediately repent in sackcloth and ashes, break down sobbing and crying and cry out for God to forgive you, to be merciful to you for such a wicked, horrible sin? My point is you'd immediately react to the big sins in your life, but the little sins kind of just happen over and over again without you really addressing them. So grumbling is that thing we do when circumstances aren't what we want them to be or people don't do the things that we want them to do. It's what we do when we're dissatisfied with our lot in life. That inner dissatisfaction comes out verbally. Now we might call it venting or complaining, or just being real about life. But the Bible calls it grumbling. And this morning, we're going to see just how serious 
grumbling is and what it reveals about our hearts. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus 15. Exodus 15 is on page 57. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, my outline is right there in the bulletin. Title of my sermon, Grumbling in the Wilderness. As you're flipping to Exodus 15, remember last week we saw this incredible, miraculous, historical salvation where God delivered Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand, brought about this deliverance by judging Egypt through a series of 10 plagues, which finally broke Pharaoh's obstinance, and he finally declared, let God's people go. He let them go, finally. Following their departure, he changes his mind, and he pursues them all the way down to the Red Sea, where God puts an exclamation point, if you will, on the fact that he is God and there is no other by literally dividing the Red Sea so God's people can walk, along, walk across on dry ground and live and Pharaoh's army is completely destroyed. What happens next? Well, great victories always result in great rejoicing. But the question I want to ask as we kick off point number one, Israel in the wilderness is why did God free Israel from slavery? Why did he do it ultimately? Answer, so that they might serve him. Moses told Pharaoh that right up front, Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son, therefore let my son go. Why? So that he may serve me. Over and over again, Moses kept saying, let my people go that they may serve me. Exodus 8.1, Here's the question. What does serving God look like? Well, it looks like trusting God's provision. If you would, go ahead and flip your bulletin over. Let me just remind you where we are at in the book of Exodus. We're making a big turn here this morning. So Exodus, beginning of Exodus 1.8 all the way to 15.21 highlights that God is a God who saves. Now we're transitioning to part two, that God is a God that not only saves, but God is a God who sanctifies a people who A, trust God's provision, B, obey God's law, and C, dwell in God's presence. That will take us all the way through the book of Exodus. So this morning, we're going to see if Israel really does trust God's provision or if they just grumble. So let's start with number one, Israel in the wilderness. A, the problem of water. Follow along as I read Exodus 15, 22 to 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter, therefore it was named Marah, which means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for him a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God... And do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. Verse 27. Then they came to Elam. 
where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, can you believe it? We are only three days away from the most glorious example of God's power, God's authority, and God's salvation in the entire Old Testament. And what are the people doing already? They're grumbling. What shall we drink? I don't know. God just split the Red Sea in half and kept you alive. Surely God is going to figure something out, don't you think? But to be fair, let's understand the situation. The issue is not just the lack of water, but number one, the lack of drinkable water. So they've been traveling three days in the wilderness and haven't found any water, which is a very big deal. You've got two million people here. You've got all this livestock and water is necessary, essential to live. Okay, so put your feet in their feet, like see what they see, right? When, when all of a sudden they see this oasis, imagine their relief as the news makes its way all the way from the front of the caravan to the back of the caravan that they found water, but then how their hopes are crushed when the water turns out to be bitter, meaning it's undrinkable. So how do they respond? Number two, they grumble. Verse 24 says, and the people grumbled against Moses. Now, given the seriousness of the situation, no water, no life, maybe that doesn't sound so bad to you. Meaning, who wouldn't grumble? Well, it might be understandable, but it's certainly not acceptable because their grumbling isn't solely against Moses. It's ultimately against God. So their grumbling exposes their deep spiritual discontentment, not just with the situation, but with God. John McKay says the principal problem is their lack of spiritual awareness. So thinking this was just a mundane lack of water, they vent their feelings So their inner discontentment expresses itself in a hostile complaining and grumbling. But at the heart of their problem was not giving God his rightful place in their lives. And yet, how does God respond? Number three, he graciously provides water. Verse 25, God tells Moses to throw a log in the water and somehow the water becomes drinkable. As I'm sure you can imagine, some have tried to explain this away scientifically. But the best way to understand it is that it's a miracle. But it's a miracle with a purpose, right? Verse 25 says it's a test, not a test as if God's tempting Israel to sin, but a test to train them so that they might be a people who trust him. Verse 26, the Lord says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Why? For I am the Lord, your healer. Now put this in context. These people, three days ago, 
I don't, I don't care how bad your memory is. Three days ago, this just happened, right? These people just saying praises to God for his glorious deliverance, which they were able to see with their own eyes. But now he's training them to trust God for their daily needs, which they can't see. So he's calling them to walk by faith and not by sight. How? By graciously providing exactly what they need despite their lack of faith and their ongoing grumbling. Isn't that amazing grace? More of that to come. So A, the water, the problem of water. Now B, the problem of food. Follow along as I read, starting Exodus 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, so about 30 days since they left, notice what it says. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Incredible. What's the problem this time? It's not water, but food. How do they respond? They grumble. And the text is clear, isn't it? Verse 2 says, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Verse 3, we wish we just died in Egypt with our meat pots and our bread loaves, which is so wrong, incredibly wicked that they're even thinking that way because they're essentially wishing that God had never saved them. And who are they taking it out on? Moses and Aaron, just look at the motives that they assign to these guys. Verse 3, they say, you brought us out into the wilderness just to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's crazy. Again, what's going on with them? John McKay says the principal problem is their lack of spiritual awareness. So thinking this was just a mundane lack of food, they vent their feelings. So their inner discontentment expresses itself in hostile complaining and grumbling. But at the heart of their problem was not giving God his rightful place in their lives. They don't like their situation. They don't like their lot in life. They don't like the way things are going. They don't like the way this is playing out. So what do they do when they don't like the way things are going? They grumble. Not ultimately against Moses or Aaron, but against God. And how does God respond? He graciously provides. Provides in three different ways. They're listed right there in your outline. The provision of food, the provision of rest, and the provision of remembrance. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. 
So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, and that you're grumbling against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it's purposeful testing, isn't it? He's testing them, training them to trust him. Verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as you can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. What do they do? Verse 20, they did not listen to Moses, meaning they did not listen to God, and some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. So obviously, number one, God's provision of food. Not just bread, but meat. So God miraculously provides a special provision of kale, kind, quail, kind of a once-and-done kind of provision. But manna was a regular, miraculous, ongoing for 40 years provision. Verse 31 says it was like a white coriander seed that tasted like wafers and honey, but it's available to them every single morning. A day's portion every single day. Look at verse 35 clarifies. They ate manna every day for 40 years till they came to the habitable land. Just think about that for a moment. You have 2 million people eating bread for 40 years straight in the wilderness Every day, being fed, no kitchen, in the wilderness. Until one day, they walk into the promised land, 
And on that very day, God's provision of manna stops. Isn't that absolutely incredible? God's regular, miraculous, ongoing provision. And why does God do it? Well, we're given three reasons right in the text. First reason, to show his glory. Verse 7 says, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. In other words, when the manna miraculously appears, that's a demonstration of God's glory, God's glorious provision. Second reason, so that they might know God. Verse 12, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know, what shall you know? That I am the Lord your God. So obviously the goal is not just intellectual assent, but a people who know God in the depth of their hearts, that they would know that this God is their God, so that they might trust his provision. But even now, it's obvious, isn't it, that they don't really know this God because they're not really trusting this God. They're not really trusting this God to provide. If they knew God, they would trust God. And if they trust God, they would obey God. Hence the third reason that God might test them. Verse 4, God says, Behold, I'm about to rain down bread from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Why? So that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So explicit instructions telling them how the manna must be eaten every single day. So don't try to gather more than a day's food. Why? Because God wants you to trust him daily as your glorious provider. So the question is, will they believe God? Will they trust God? Will they take God at his word? Will they keep God's commandments? Will they walk in his ways? Or... Will they do their own thing? Obviously, they do their own thing. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. So they refuse to walk by faith. But that's not how it's supposed to be. That's not how it's supposed to work with the people of God. The people of God are called and commanded to be a people who trust God's provision. Not just what they can see, but what they can't see. They walk by faith and not by sight. So number one, the provision of food. Number two, the provision of rest. We'll pick it up in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there was no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet here we go. Verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. But they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. That's crystal clear. Don't you think? Five days, go out, grab your bread. On those days, eat that bread that day. But on the sixth day, grab two days worth of bread so that you can rest on the Sabbath day. Why? Because number two, God's providing rest. But at the heart of his command is a test to see if they're going to trust him or not. So again, this requires faith. Five days, it stinks and there's worms if we carry it over. So we got to trust God on the sixth day that it won't. It requires faith. You can't see that. So you got to trust him. Will they believe God? Will they trust God? Will they take God at his word? Will they keep his commands and walk in his ways? Or will they do their own thing? Again, they do their own thing. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out together, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and obey my laws? God is clearly providing, but the people are not trusting. So God's provision of food, God's provision of rest, now God's provision of remembrance. Verse 31, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like a coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Here's the summary. Verse 35, the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And for clarity, just in case you're wondering, an omer is the 10th part of an ephah. Good to know when you're cooking. What are all these commands about? They're all about remembering. God wants them to remember his miraculous daily ongoing provision by putting two quarts of manna in a jar and storing it for the foreseeable future so that they don't forget God's miraculous ongoing daily provision. Why is that important? Because we are a forgetful people. And we're not only a forgetful people, but we're a people who are quick to grumble. So they need to be reminded daily. And I think one of the best ways in which we're reminded of something is if we actually teach it 
to others. So he wants them not only to be reminded, but to be faithful to teach this to the next generation, who definitely needs to be told. Hey, Dad, how did you survive the wilderness for 40 years? Great question, son. God provided manna. He provided manna like every single day, son. What was the manna like, Dad? What was like a Tony the Tiger frosted flake, son? Something like that. But here's the point, son, because I don't care about what it was like. I care about the fact that God always provided, son, every single day, son. God provided for 40 years, every single morning. God was faithful to provide for his people. Forty straight years, God never missed a morning sun. We don't just remember to remember, right? We remember this God is our God so that it might impact the way in which we live our lives. So let's see if it's actually impacting the way that the Israelites are living their lives. Problem of water, problem of food. Now again, see the problem of water. Follow along as I read Exodus 17, 1 to 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Oh no. Here we go again. Verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. So demanding it now. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. They're an out-of-control mob. Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, which means quarreling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, I don't know how you're feeling, but at this point in time, this is just painful for me, right? This is like deja vu all over again, right? It's like you're living the life of Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, if you know that movie where he gets up every single morning and does the exact same thing over and over again. And yet, as you think about Bill Murray and the Groundhog Day, at least Bill Murray made progress day after day. He got better at things, but the Israelites aren't making any progress. They just continue to walk by sight and not by faith, so they're not trusting God's promises or God's provision at all. 
It's the same issue. No water. That's like a teacher who gives you the exact same question on the quiz and then on the test and like, and then you keep getting it wrong, right? I mean, we've done water before. I, I've seen this. Respond rightly. Back then, God delivered them through a log. This time, he delivers them out of a rock. But every time, God provides. The people grumble, they complain, they even test the Lord. So their lack of faith is not getting, their faith is not getting better. Their lack of faith instead is intensifying. They demand God's provision, verse 2. They question God's protection, verse 3. And they even doubt God's presence, verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Yet God graciously, miraculously provides. Water out of a rock. That's incredible. And be clear, this is no kindergarten water fountain that we're talking about, right? This is enough water to quench the thirst of two million people and all of their livestock for quite a long period of time. As a result of the people's consistent, nonstop, unchanging rejection of God, Moses names the place testing and quarreling, which tells you exactly where these people's hearts are at. They're not trusting God, but testing God. They're not accepting God's provision, but instead are quarreling, complaining, and grumbling. So what do we do? With all of this. I mean, pretty discouraging morning, if I do say so myself, right? Nothing like wading through the waters of unbelief for the morning. But how does Israel's example help us? Well, for starters, that's exactly how we need to look at it as an example. Israel is an example to us of what not to do. Because the Bible is crystal clear that what we're looking at here as we make our way through Exodus is their unbelief. What I'm saying is that most of Israel at this point in time are not Christians. They're not believers. If you would, go ahead and flip forward to Psalm 95. Let me prove that to you. Might seem like a big statement. Psalm 95, page 499. We are going to come back to grumbling. I'm not going to forget about that. We're going to look at Israel. Then we're going to make our way to the Lord Jesus. Then we're going to come back to grumbling. Look at Psalm 95. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 6. He says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are his people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, here it is, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. 
Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So crystal clear, these people are examples of unbelief. So although they'd seen the glory of God's miraculous salvation over and over and over again, it did not profit them. Because they weren't good enough? No. Because they weren't tall enough? No. Because they weren't impressive enough? No. It didn't profit them because it didn't cause them to wholeheartedly trust in God and trust in God's provision. So Israel refused to walk by faith, refused to trust God's provision, refused to believe God's promises, obey God's commandments, and dwell in God's presence. One other thing that Israel refused to do. They refused to look forward and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. He saw it and was glad. These people refused to look forward and see Jesus' day. They They refused to look forward and see Jesus himself, who also walked in wilderness but trusted God perfectly. So let's transition from number one to number two, Christ in the wilderness. So three ways in which Israel's wilderness experience points forward to the Lord Jesus. Starting with A, Christ is the one true Israelite. You can turn to Matthew 4 if you want. Matthew 4, we get a picture of Jesus succeeding where Israel failed. Now I would suggest Matthew does this on purpose. Matthew 2.15, he quotes Exodus 4.22, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Not talking about the Israelites, but we're talking about the Lord Jesus. Then Jesus goes through the waters of baptism and is tested in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. What's the first test when he's tested in the wilderness? It's food. Tempter says, verse 3, Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. How does Jesus respond? He quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3, and he says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And of course, there were two more tests for Jesus in the wilderness, bringing you to a total of three tests, just like the Israelites. So Jesus perfectly identifies with Israel's wilderness experience, and yet he perfectly, obediently trusts God's provision without grumbling, showing himself to be the one true Israelite. And of course, he passed every other test as well, fulfilling God's law perfectly, living a life of sinless perfection, all so that he can offer us the glorious provision of salvation. Jesus is not just the one true Israelite. He's also the bread from heaven. John 6. If you would, go ahead and flip forward to John 6. Page 891. Matthew, Luke, John. If you remember, John 6 starts with Jesus feeding the 5,000. And he feeds them in such a way that everyone is satisfied. So the people follow him, not because he's the savior of the world, but because they want more food. Jesus says to them, verse 27, John 6, verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now, of course, the people don't fully understand what he's talking about. So they say, verse 30, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus just fed 5,000 people, right? So he's given them a sign. But he doesn't ultimately care about physical food. What he cares most about is spiritual life. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives, present tense, you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So crystal clear offer of salvation because it's only in Jesus that our souls are satisfied with eternal life. But how do these Israelites respond? Look at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Grumbling. Why grumbling? It's like they haven't learned anything over these generations. Jesus is offering salvation. Why in the world would you grumble about that? Don't you see they wanted salvation on their own terms? And yet God's given us salvation. But it's in Christ, the bread of heaven. But the people grumbled. I would suggest people are still grumbling. Either about a crucified Savior or that there's only one way to God or how ridiculous it is that the Son of Man rose from the dead on the third day. Whatever it is, they're grumbling. They want salvation on their own terms. When what they should do is fall down and worship Jesus. Trusting God's wonderful glorious, abundant, all-satisfying provision of salvation in the Lord Jesus, who is the one true Israelite, the bread of heaven, and who is also the rock that was struck. If you would, flip forward to 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10, page 957. First Corinthians 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Listen to this. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us. 
that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed. Now, first of all, what exactly does it mean that rock, that the rock was Christ? Well, I take it to mean that the rock was a foreshadowing of Christ. So Moses struck the rock instead of striking the Israelites, and as a result, the water flowed in order to save the people. So in the same way, Jesus was struck instead of us, Isaiah 53, 5, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. So Jesus died in our place, died the death that we deserve to die, and as a result, he offers us life. So Jesus was struck instead of us so that we might be saved. Christ, the one true Israelite, Christ, the bread of heaven, and Christ, the rock, struck for our salvation. Okay, now let's move to application. How do we respond? Number three, response to the wilderness. I'm suggesting two ways for us to respond as we close this morning. A, we must be a people who wholeheartedly trust in God's saving provision. And then B, we must be a people who trust in God's ongoing daily provision. So A, trusting God's saving provision. Isn't it awesome as we make our way through Exodus that the whole Bible is constantly pointing forward to the Lord Jesus? And and it's pointing forward to the Lord Jesus in a very specific way because Jesus is God's glorious, miraculous provision for our salvation. And yet, if we just follow the direction of Exodus, right, it's, it's only available to those who actually trust him. The Israelites obviously didn't. And as a result, they didn't enter the promised land of God's eternal rest, but instead were destroyed in the wilderness. So I'm appealing to you this morning. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. And don't be those who are grumbling at God's glorious provision. And as a result, perish in your sins. But instead, repent, believe, and be saved. Trust in the one who lived the life that you could not live. Trust in the bread that is able to sustain your soul. And trust in the rock that was struck for your salvation. God offers you a glorious provision in Christ. But it requires you to trust him. You have to accept this is the salvation that the Lord has provided for you. You don't get to create salvation on your own terms. He is God and there is no other. So come and trust in his glorious provision. And for you, dear believer, I want to end where I began this morning. Asking you the question, where would you put the sin of grumbling in your list of sins?
would you put it as a big sin that needs to be dealt with immediately? Or do you think of grumbling as a little sin that kind of just happens? You know, just kind of part of life happens over and over. You're not really dealing with it. Philippians 2.14 is very clear. It commands us as believers. This is Philippians 2.14. To do all things without grumbling or disputing. Not some things. Not most things. To do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, as those who are holding fast to the word of life. So the command is clear. So here's the question. Where do you grumble the most? Where do you grumble the most? Notice the assumption I put in there that you do grumble. I'm not asking, do you grumble? I'm saying, where do you grumble the most? And do you recognize that when you grumble, you're demonstrating that you're not trusting God to provide for you? So where do you grumble the most? Where are you not trusting God the most? Is it your health? Is it your finances? Is it your relationships? Is it your inconveniences? I'm the king of the universe. I rule and reign over all things. And when in my, I get in my car, other cars should move because I am going someplace. And that red light should turn from red to green because I'm the center of the universe. And I am not to be inconvenienced. I rule and I reign. Where do you grumble the most? Is it your inconveniences? You have heart work to do this morning. I don't know where you grumble the most. You have to figure that out. You have to ask that question. Where am I demonstrating by grumbling because I grumble in categories? These consistent categories is where I grumble. And that means that I'm not trusting God to provide in my life. First question, where do you grumble? Second question, harder question. Are you taking that grumbling serious? Are you interpreting it rightly as an offense against the almighty, all-powerful, always sovereign and gracious God who's specifically at work in your life, molding you and shaping you, preparing you for the promised land of heaven?
Are you taking it seriously? Let me translate. God brings difficulty in your life in order to mold you and shape you so that you would be ready, prepared to go to the promised land of heaven. And when he brings that inconvenience, how do you respond? We grumble against the God who's doing good things in our life. Beloved, let us be clear enough, wise enough, faithful enough to recognize God is doing a good work in our lives, even in the difficulty. So let us be a people who are quick to acknowledge grumbling as sin, the sin that it is, that we might repent of our grumbling and we might grow in trusting wholeheartedly in God's saving provision in Christ and God's ongoing provision every day in our lives. May we be a people who simply trust and obey. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we recognize we have much to repent of. Father, I just recognize if I look at my own heart and how quick I am to move towards grumbling and recognizing that that means that I'm not really trusting you to provide in my daily life. So, Father, I, I ask that you would forgive me. I ask that you would forgive us. Help us to be a people who do not run immediately to grumbling. Cause us to be a people who wholeheartedly trust your provision, knowing that it's, it's grounded on the finished work of Christ. You've done all these things in our life for our salvation. Surely you will take care of these other things. Lord, help us to be a people who walk by faith and not by sight. Do that good work for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.